0: Welcome to Profiles, a weekly program that introduces members of our community, along with visiting artists, scholars, entertainers, and other notable figures to the WFIU audience. I'm Yael Cassandra, and our guest today is the painter Robert Barnes. Welcome to Profiles, and happy birthday, Bob. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) We're welcoming Robert Barnes back to the Indiana University Bloomington campus, On the occasion of his late career retrospective at the IU Art Museum. Robert Barnes is acclaimed as a visual storyteller, and his major works, Dennis Adrian writes, are grounded in historical, literary, and artistic subjects, many of a peculiar kind, including alchemy, secret poets and writers, and artists specializing in the bizarre, the fantastic, the mythical, and the hermetically arcane worlds of religious history, myths, and legends. Barnes taught painting in IU's Hope School of Fine Arts from 1964 through 1999. Since then, he's been living in coastal Maine and in Umbria, Italy, with his wife, the painter Nancy Barnes. But let's go back to the beginning. You were born in Washington, Mm DC but you relocated to the Chicago area with your family. Talk about moving to Chicago, the Chicago area, going to the Art Institute of Chicago, and how being in that cultural milieu may have somehow informed your path, if you can look at it with twenty twenty hindsight.
1: Well, that's a long time ago, isn't it?
0: <laughs> you know,
1: I don't remember in my childhood any contact with culture with the arts or music. I had to do it mostly myself. There were no books in my house. There was no music. And I had to find it for myself. <laughs> Believe it or not, the first composer that I learned to like was Stravinsky.
0: Huh. How did you stumble across Stravinsky?
1: I just heard it somewhere, and then I got a disc. Most kids are reading porn. I would stay on the basement smoking cigars and listening to Stravinsky. <laughs> And, and
0: was, you don't know where that came from?
1: No. Well, my grandfather was very strange. He was a diplomat. He uh, was not uh, your normal person. He was not insane or anything, but he was very eccentric and loved opera. His favorite moment was that he played the violin for Jenny Lind.
0: Oh. Well, how about how about visual art? How did you stumble across painting?
1: Well, I had the usual. I went to a good high school, newture High School, which was famous as a really elegant and excellent high school. And uh, I had art teachers who exposed me, as we all do. That's where we find our uh, base often, very often. I had teachers who, uh, one of them was an art critic, was a Chicago Tribune art critic, and even took me down to the Art Institute. That's where I remember one of the first shows I saw was Matisse, which I didn't like very much. It was Mm -hmm. too dumb.
0: Too dumb? You felt that the content was... um Well,
1: for someone whose first exposure, Mm -hmm. everyone's thought about art is something like Barbizon or Renaissance, gray, you know, brownish stuff. it was very shocking to me. Later I came to love Matisse, but I did that, and we had a very eccentric music teacher who uh, taught musicology and would Mm -hmm. burst into... Indian love songs in the language, and taught us to love music, and that was good for me. That's how I got my start of Mm. liking these things.
0: Well, it sounds like a pretty broad, but also rather in-depth and expert cultural education. Yeah. uh, But why was it, do you think, that, that painting was the thing that really grabbed you?
1: This is a true story. I went down to Chicago because I wanted to become an actor. I wanted to go to the Goodman Theater School and went with my friend Jimmy Dean. <laughs> and, and not the <laughs> not <social> that one. <laughs> and he was going to apply to the Art Institute, and I was going to do the Goodman Theater. Actually, at their institute, you wouldn't believe us they gave you a scholarship exam where they gave you a bunch of pencils and some crayons, and you made creative things, <laughs> supposedly. <laughs> and it was so bizarre. And they look down and choose people.
0: That was the application?
1: Yeah. And so I went over to the Goodman Theater School, and it was closed on Monday. So I went with my friend Jimmy, and I took the exam. And they gave me a scholarship, so I went to that institute. No one believes this in my life. <laughs>
0: That's how I started. I wonder if they kept that little scribble that you made and well
1: it's probably just a real scribble and they thought that was creative. A lot of people think anything that's bizarre is creative. It isn't. You know, in fact very often it's conventional to be bizarre.
0: But presumably at the art institute they knew the difference. No they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well so who were your teachers and how did you manage to get lumped in with these folks called the Chicago Imagists?
1: I never did. I never belonged to the Chicago Imagists. I've always been on the periphery of that. Mm-hmm. When the Museum of Contemporary Art, at a show of the images. I was excluded. And a lot of the critics complained. And I,
0: I told them, you know,
1: I never was part of it. If you look at my work, you, you'll see it. I don't belong anywhere.
0: Nonetheless, Franz Schulze calls yeah. you a second-generation Chicago imagist. What do you think about that?
1: <laughs> Terrible mistake because I was <laughs> before the imagist. I was in Chicago way before that, so they came much later after I'd left.
0: How about these people? Irving Petlin, Ellen Lanyon, Seymour Rozovsky.
1: Irving Petlin was my rival, in love as well as art. He's still living. He's one of the few uh, that are still living. Um, In
0: love as well as art? That sounds like a pretty good story there.
1: He wanted to marry the woman that I married. (laughs) I wish he had.
0: So is he as acclaimed an artist as you these days?
1: He's in Paris and mm-hmm. married a ballerina. I guess he's doing okay. You don't hear much about him.
0: But as far as that being an actual group or, I mean, this grouping, where did this come from? And, well, and, and does that have any particular significance? It was the
1: people that were in school at the same time. Uh-huh. We were had a very close-knit group. Ellen Lanyon was a wonderful person. She died just recently. It broke my heart. I, mean, I could not get it. I still can't get over it. She dropped dead in Heathrow Airport. Mm -hmm. Well, I can understand that, waiting those lines to get through customs. So at any rate, uh, Rasovsky was a little before me. And we also had Leon Golub, who I adore still. And we had uh, Klaus Oldenburg. We shared a a love of Disney.
0: And he of the gigantic hamburgers and things like that. The soft sculpture. Yeah. And so um, he was... Your classmate at the Chicago yeah. Art Institute?
1: Uh, I think maybe he only went two years. Cliff Westerman was a bigger influence. Hmm. I loved Cliff.
0: Do you do you feel, for example, since Clay Aldenberg is someone that folks know, is there an affinity between his work and yours? Yeah. Well,
1: it's the Disney-esque thing.
0: Disney-esque. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at my paintings, you will. People always say, "Oh, you're a wonderful colorist." I'm not a great colorist. I love. Pinocchio and Snow White, and the color of Pinocchio and Snow White, is infused in me. They're probably the first uh, human-made objects that could be called art or images, and I, I just adore Disney.
0: It's so interesting that you bring up Pinocchio, yeah? because in both of these images in the Blood and Perfume. Series, you have a central figure who looks like someone who's a puppeteer. Yeah, that's, people
1: misinterpret that. He's pouring, actually pouring perfume.
0: I see that in Molinar Grasse, but also in this one, uh, Guerlain, which is also about a a perfumist. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, there's a gesture in the center of the image that looks almost like a Geppetto or someone who's making. You you
1: could say that, but really, it's just making perfume. And uh, I love that series, I love doing it because I I studied perfume. So I w- was interested in it because uh, smell is not visual. And I wanted to paint it so it smelled. And I met this woman who was this perfume lady. She was, I think, Romanian or something. And she was lovely and very uh, intelligent. And I got samples and she asked me what I was doing with it. And I said, well, I'm going to put it in the paint because I'm painting these perfume paintings. And I got bags and bags of perfume, which I put
0: into my paint. You added perfume literally to your paint. Instead of turpentine, yeah. Instead of turpentine? Yeah. As a solvent?
1: It's a better solvent than turpentine because it's made to evaporate. The, the, what you want in a, uh, in, a, in a solvent when you're painting is you want something to evaporate out quickly. And this was great. If, and I looked into buying the solvent. It was horribly expensive.
0: So So you really were an alchemist. I don't know, I I,
1: I never thought of that. I just wanted perfumes around me. I wanted to think about it, and I think you can sort of sense it, although they don't smell anymore.
0: Well, you know, all art uh, aspires to the condition of music. I guess that was the credo of the aesthetic movement. I guess for you, all art aspires to the condition of aroma.
1: Or me. (laughs) <laughs> what do you mean by that? How I am. I, my paintings are about me. They aren't about anything. This always shocks people when I tell them that the imagery is only an armature for the painting. It's not important. Although to me it becomes a link that, I wouldn't want to use the word inspiration, but it makes me have a different contact other than touch. Touch is the most important thing in painting. You can tell a person's style by touch, and then I, I started painting that way. The second most important thing is the massing of volumes and color, which is not I never I plan it. It's intuitive, totally.
0: For someone who's so concerned with touch, and with the feeling of the painting, the imagery that you do choose is, as Dennis Adrian wrote arcane, esoteric. You refer to complex allegory and biblical allusions. I mean, this whole show is called Grand Allusion. So why then do you choose such elaborate imagery and narrative for your pictures if you're more interested in the formal qualities?
1: I don't choose it. I mean, I don't see it as arcane either. I see it as something that interests me and intrigues me. And I don't choose it. It comes to me. And uh, I will f- read something or find something, and I'll think, well, that makes a nice allegorical moment. It just happens. It, I don't plan it. I, it happens. And that's the best painting that I do, is when it, it flows and when it becomes like gesturing or conducting music. I play a lot of music when I work. I remember. and... and I feel that you have to swing into a painting. It is shocking to me sometimes the imagery that comes up, but that can't be helped. That's what it is.
0: So you're saying, Bob, that biblical allegory or Greco Roman myth or various other sources of your stories are there, waiting in the wings, ready to be placed into service of your paintings.
1: Well, I have to go back to rural Maine, but uh, I hope this never gets to me. I have never read the Bible, <laughs> and it doesn't really interest me. I was I thinking, just old, a bunch of old rabbis in the desert scribbled this thing up. Oh, that's not good to say, is it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, how? but how about the fact that, you know, the first painting that put you on the map was one of Judith and Holofernes? of yeah. Where did Where did you pull that from? Another uh, painting? I mean, there are many, a, many paintings was of the same metaphor subject.
1: for school.
0: I see. Talk, talk about that.
1: I thought of it at that time as school as a kind of beheading, that you're deprived of intelligence rather than gaining it. And I often have thought of that later, that some, some contact I've had with education is to make you think a certain way, and that to me is a beheading when it becomes rote.
0: Well, that means a lot coming from uh, a loaded statement, coming from someone who has devoted the, the large part of his career to academia. Yeah. How, what was your relationship to yeah, teaching?
1: You know I always hated the academic aspect of teaching. I loved my students, and I wanted them the best, and they definitely inspired me, even you. Why, thank you. And I, I grew from my students. You know, this place, the School of the Fine Arts here, was started as an attempt to transplant the artistic community into the academic setting and was left alone to develop. Henry Hope, he started the school and he expected artists to be artists. We all had studios and he would go around at night and make sure we were working and we had to show our work. Mm. We had to be professional artists first And then uh, all of a sudden I discovered I could never get another job because I don't have a master's degree. Uh, Matisse couldn't have gotten a job here. (laughs) Uh, Picasso couldn't have gotten a job. People started judging each other on paper. Uh, I swear nobody really knows what a good painting looks like anymore and wouldn't judge an artist. Oh, yeah, you paint well.
0: Well, certainly there's a lot of Focus on pedigree and academia now. Oh, yeah. But how did you perceive your role vis-a-vis the students that you were mentoring?
1: My purpose was for them to think that what I told them was their own idea later.
0: Inspire a person to
1: think (laughs) and develop, and then later on they said, oh, I thought of this, and that's a wonderful (laughs) thing to do.
0: One of the first things I remember you saying Uh in in a critique maybe not a critique, maybe just an orientation, was, okay, kids, some of you may be here because you think painting is fun. Oh, yeah, I hate Painting is not fun. It's religion. <laughs> it's religion. Would you elaborate? Well, even religion
1: gets funny now. They have these guys running around in fancy roads and playing guitars, and I don't think that's religion. It is something more profound than fun. Fun is, I don't know what fun is, but it's not painting, it's not art. We live in a generation that can only be entertained, and art has to entertain, but they're not sucked into it. You know, one of the things that I want most from my work is for people to immerse themselves. There's a collector who writes about me in this book, Larry Aronson, who has paintings that he's had for years. And he'll call me up and, oh, Bob, I just discovered He said, I've been looking at this for 20 years, and I see this new thing. And even I do. I will go through this morning, went through the gallery, and I thought, oh, I was smart to do that. I didn't realize that I was so smart.
0: Mm. And so I guess you're making a distinction between art that lasts and art that doesn't last. Well,
1: that art involves you you as you, not uh, shocks you or reaches out to you. You have to enter, you have to be part of it. Monet said something about how people want to explain and understand my work when all they need to do is love it. And that's true. We're so used to answers and even questions that we can't approach something and just meld with it, Mm -hmm. just blend into it, just experience. I mean, you don't question trees. You don't question grass. You experience it. Mm-hmm. You, know, you smell it, you walk on it, and that's what I want.
0: Yeah. It also brings to mind the difference between sort of high art and low art, and currently and for for almost 50 years, really, that boundary has been blurred to, to a greater extent. You came of age at a time when with pop art and even with some of the, um, well, Rauschenberg, huh. there was a great deal of that blurring going on. And even with your buddy Klaus Oldenburg, the appropriation from popular culture mm-hmm. was becoming orthodox in fine art. Well, you know, what, what I, do you, It sounds like you have maybe a bit of hesitation about that.
1: Well, I grew up with Marcel Duchamp as a young artist, mm-hmm. and he encouraged me. He said, "Well, you love theater? you know, make your paints theater." He didn't was not dogmatic, mm-hmm. and when I look at Duchamp's work, there's a romance, and there's a power that is not entertainment. it's more it's something you learn to believe and you enter into. He was a tremendous influence on me, and no one can understand that because he wasn't he didn't paint flat paintings. <laughs> Well, early on, he did been would
0: you share uh, how you met him and who through, really? through Mata? And how did you meet Mata? Uh,
1: I met Mata in Chicago. He gave a seminar there.
0: The Chilean-born artist, yeah. Uh,
1: and for some reason, we hit it off. I, I loved him, and I, I was more in love with his wife. Boy, she was a really gorgeous, Brigitte Bardot type.
0: Sounds like love and art really intersected quite a bit in your in your life.
1: Art is sex. It is. I did, uh, someone asked me to do an erotic painting once, a dealer, and I tried, and I said, I can't do this. The painting's erotic. You can't add the subject. makes it phony.
0: You mean that the process of painting and is in some way erotic?
1: I'm not going to do this on the air, but uh, you merge with a painting the same way you, way you do other times.
0: <laughs> and that creative process. is Yeah. Somehow, yeah. Um, so you, you met Mata in Chicago, mm-hmm. and and, and it, then through him, Marcel Duchamp.
1: Yeah, well, I went to New York, and Mata and I, I, I would tell people I learned my moral code from Mata. He had the moral code of an alley cat. That's why, mean <laughs> he was not.
0: <laughs> You're fairly unapologetic. He had
1: nine, nine wives.
0: Nine, nine wives. Uh, yeah. You went to New York in 1958, Something and you happened. managed to sell a painting to the Whitney.
1: Yeah, that was through Duchamp. He talked him into it.
0: Marcel Duchamp talked the Whitney into buying your painting.
1: Well, he he was friends with uh, Bill Copley, who had the Copley Foundation. And the Copley Foundation bought a painting each year for the Whitney. And he said, well, buy this guy's painting. I don't know how good the painting is. I haven't seen it. Well, it's in, I have more paintings than museum basements. I should have a basement show uh, <laughs> sometime.
0: So you're saying um, it did or it, it didn't impact your career, selling that painting? Put, didn't that put you on the map a little bit? No. No?
1: Not really, no.
0: You moved to London soon after that.
1: I got a Fulbright thing at London mm-hmm. and uh, studied with Sir William Coldstream. And uh, I, I didn't study so much with Coldstream because... We got along real well, but he felt he didn't have much to give me because I was still an abstract painter at that time. I uh, was just edging out of it. And he and it was semi-abstract work, which is always a joke. But <laughs> there's no such thing as semi-abstract. It's either one or the other. But any rate, uh, he got Francis Bacon to tutor me. And <laughs> I didn't know how hot he was. But he would come out at 4 o'clock on, I think, Tuesdays and Thursdays, and we would he was always too drunk and doped up to say anything. I, I spent more time nursing him. But as a result, the best thing he did for me, he, he was on the arts council, and he gave me all his theater tickets because he was never in any condition by 8 o'clock <laughs> to go anywhere. So I i loved the guy. He was really sweet. And, uh he wasn't. You know, artists are never what people uh, make them out to be after they're dead. Marcel Duchamp said, look, they're waiting to write my biography until I'm dead, because then they can say whatever they think.
0: <laughs> you know, with Bacon, though, there does seem to be a stylistic affinity, or even an affinity in terms of the fantastic and surrealistic imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, is there perhaps not more of a kinship than you conceive?
1: Well, that's why I was talking to Marshal Duchamp about my dilemma. I did not like surrealism. I liked the idea of it, but I did not like the way it was done. They would go to a very classical mode, Mm -hmm. and I didn't like it. I started out as an abstract expressionist, and I moved my way out basically because of people like Grace Hardigan who broke the mold, and I moved into... I guess a sort of semi-abstract thing. It was such a blessing because it taught me to love the texture, the resistance of paint, the viscous state of paint. When you work this into a painting, you have something different. Mm-hmm. Frank Auerbach was an mm-hmm. English artist that I was influenced by. Mm-hmm. Very plastic. He does portraits that are almost unrecognizable. Yeah. I didn't want to hold that far back. I wanted to go a little farther. Mm-hmm. The problem with painting is... You always have to go a little farther, and you often ruin paintings, or your paintings are overworked. I think many of my paintings are overworked, because I have to find out what's after death, what is on the (laughs) other side. I have to find out what's there.
0: How did you manage to transition from abstraction to representation and then stay the course in an atmosphere of the... 50s and 60s that was very anti-representation.
1: Well, it didn't matter to me, but um, I think it's my love of literature and theater. Although moving pictures of cinema is so powerful now. It may be our only art form, our greatest Mm. art form, and the rest is dropping away. Mm. I paint pictures because I like being a little bit archaic. A little bit useless, you know? Mm. where You don't have to prove anything, really. You do it, and and you say, there you go. That's what you get.
0: That's almost, to me, sounds like a concession that painting is not a relevant art form in our contemporary society. Well,
1: it's relevant if it's there. That's what I think. If, for instance, Picasso did a cave painting, it would be relevant very quickly. You see, it doesn't matter. It's the person that matters and how well the person does it and how it affects people. If they can love it, then you may something wonderful.
0: Well, they can only love it if you're well-positioned enough for them to see it.
1: Yeah, well, that's a problem. And yeah.
0: how, how did you manage that out here in the Midwest for so many years?
1: Well, I had a, a New York gallery Alan Frumkin, showed me for years.
0: And what about all of the other poor slobs who are out here trying to be painters in the Midwest?
1: I, I would say don't worry about it. Paint your pictures the best you can and make as powerful an image, have power for whatever you do Powerful enough that it, it feeds you, and uh,
0: that it, that that the image feeds you spiritually. Everything. Now, what about the food on the table? How how is it? How is an artist going to make it in a society where painting is not esteemed as well, it, a relevant they, art form?
1: I don't know because you can't teach anymore unless you. Uh, for one job, there are probably ten thousand applications. <laughs> uh, well, the world has grown. That's so many problems. The world has is getting too crowded to be a person. Why do you think people are always on the phone? Mm -hmm. I think they have to justify, make sure that they're there. Oh, uh, I still exist in this crowd. Uh, Here I am.
0: What do you think about your painting's relationship to contemporary society? I remember that there was this refrain back in art school about what makes your painting of this time and place Is that a concern of yours now? Well, my answer
1: to that is I'm here in this time and place, and I count, and I do what I have to do, and I don't care whether I'm fashionable or not. Every fashion dies, and sometimes things come back again. And I've known so many artists, like the Barbizans, they get, oh no, Barbizans are horrible. Now people are rediscovering the Barbizon. So they did that with three-way Like it went down again.
0: But, right. you know, <laughs> and even Vermeer was forgotten about for two centuries.
1: Yeah, well, sure. And Rembrandt. I spend a lot of time on the seacoast. And I love the tides. The tides bring you something, and they take it away. They bring whole tree trunks, pieces of piers, bottles uh, where I live, there's a lot of shards of porcelain. You can go down the beach in front of my house and I can pick up pieces of porcelain that are from the 1800s. Oh. And I have a collection, a pile of them. They're so beautiful.
0: The blue and white porcelain? Yeah. Mm.
1: And some of them have writing on them. And mm. some of them have Asiatic uh, symbols. The tide is what we exist in. We exist in this great tide that flows and ebbs and then comes back, goes out, and you can't care about it. You have no control over it. Mm-hmm. I mean, artists that were dead come back. I mean, we're passé, come back. Some don't, some do. But maybe time filters things.
0: When you talk about Maine, it reminds me that, well, you've been there for 15 years yeah. now. Huh? Was that spectacular landscape And the kind of sublime awesomeness of the ocean and the coastline a big motivation, or was it the legacy of American painters living in Maine?
1: I was raised on Chesapeake Bay, and when I retired, I always wanted to get back to the ocean. There's this terrible draw of the Atlantic. I like the Atlantic because it's rough and not embracing, it's threatening. It challenges you. You go down the shore and it's it not sweet. Mm-hmm. It, it's rough and it's cold, and and there, there's no beach. There's rocks, and people are always getting too close up in, in Acadia. They tell them not to get there, and they get washed off and eaten by the ocean. <laughs> but there's something about the ocean that uh, that I remember from my youth, the Chesapeake, and that uh, it was part of my. Self, Mm -hmm. I don't like things that are real easy. Mm -hmm. And I don't like... uh, I'm not sure... One of the things about the ocean is it doesn't give you answers. It's not understandable. I don't like answers. An answer is the end. And if you have an answer, then you stop. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about paintings is each painting tells you you've got to do another. (laughs) And if if you keep that attitude never die because you have to wake up the next day to do it. I used to like in painting to dog racing where you have this bunny rabbit that's in front of you and the dogs chase after it. If they get nearer, it goes faster. If they were to get it, it would be terrible. It's just dumb metal and fake fur. But you don't want an answer in painting. You want the next painting to bring you something. And I love that. I just love I love the pursuit. I want the pursuit, but without the end of the pursuit, uh, without the success or right. whatever it is.
0: So the longing and, and the yeah. chase, yeah. There's a, a long line of painters who retreated to the rocky coast of Maine before you. Do you think about Winslow Homer, for example? No, either? I think
1: about um, Marin.
0: Oh, John Marin. I, I mm-hmm. like
1: my John Marin because... Yeah. He did what a lot of American artists did, tried to adapt Cubism without understanding anything about it, and some just made dumb paintings, but he made a new imagery from Cubism that wasn't related to Cubism, it was just more of a fragmentation. I just loved to look at him.
0: Mm. I see some of that same interest in your paintings. For one thing, you paint in, with very opaque paint, Number two, you'll have, say, a very shallow representational space like that of a proscenium. Or yeah,
1: well, like. I think of theater.
0: Theater. Yeah. And then thirdly, you'll you'll do things like this where you'll have represented surfaces parallel to the picture uh-huh. plane. So you're you're constantly I liking think, cubism, uh, chopping up Yeah, like I that. think
1: they're like little vignettes uh-huh. and that you breaking it up. Uh-huh. I don't do it for any cubistic reasons. I just think, oh, this line looks good here and it makes, I like to look at it. Uh I haven't got any real good theories. I just do my paintings. Actually, some of the best things in my paintings are things that can't be explained. Uh, I know that when I look at them, I think, oh. And that goes back to the paint living for itself, like Uh the way it started.
0: Uh The pictures we're looking at here, the Macbeth and and the Cinema a la Rocca, they're both in pastel. That's a medium well, that f- few artists have really mastered. Degas is one.
1: Actually, I've evolved something that is maybe unique to me as I've done pastels and casein, which is one of my favorite mediums. It was introduced to me by a teacher at the Art Institute. Casein is a wonderful medium because it's like acrylics except it's not icky and plasticky. It's milk-based. And you know, if you drop milk on a table and it dries, it's hard to get off. And this doesn't bleed, and it also makes a base for pastels because it's a little rough. And I mix them. I love the medium, and I don't use it the way other people do Mm -hmm. because I'm not other people. (laughs) The, The one thing I love about Picasso, I don't think I like many of his images. I don't think I like many of his paintings, but I love the way they're done with confidence and... He bends the medium to him, and that's what I do with pastel and casing. I, 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 when I was young, we, in abstract expressionism, we, we talked about the leading, having the paint lead you and the material lead you, and you flowing. And I woke up one day and I said, "That's a bunch of bullshit. I'm in command here. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna make it the way I want it." And I like that about Picasso. He bends things to his will.
0: (laughs) Let's talk about some of the other artists whom you admire. The Italians are are a big influence on you, the Renaissance painters.
1: How could they not be? Tintoretto and Titian, Tiepolo? A lot of that broken space comes from tiepolo things flying. Tiepolo is a much misunderstood artist. It's best to look at his sketches for the frescoes because you get more out of them. Mm-hmm. But Tiepolo uh, is a, a fantastic composer. And uh, Tintoretto, I mean, is a mind blaster. You look at his paintings and I don't imitate anyone. I, I absorb it.
0: That lunch bags project that you did. Oh, I'll never live that down. Can you tell us about that? I remember seeing that and being pretty delighted because it exposed a a really sweet side of you.
1: Everyone loves my lunch bag. Yeah,
0: we'll talk about it.
1: My eldest daughter with my current wife took her lunch to school and someone swiped it. And so I said, well, I'll put your name on your bag next time. (laughs) And I did. And then, of course, I can't leave anything alone. (laughs) The name got more and more elaborate. And then... uh, it sort of morphed into pictures. And then when my second daughter started school, I got more and more elaborate. And then they were, every day, what she was studying, what happened, what went wrong at school. And I would make this a little theater for her. They didn't care, they didn't pay much attention to it. But then their friends said, Oh, could we have one? Could we have the bag? And they thought, Oh, wait a minute, I got something here. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know they were doing it uh, one day. We opened their closet, and they had all the bags were there. And then they started collecting. There are over a 1,000 of them. And the bags just just got more and more elaborate. And then when they were, uh, uh, what's the name, Betsy had it in the show here. Betsy Stewart. Stewart, Stewart yeah. Mm-hmm. When they came here, there were two big garbage. Well, there were th- four big garbage. We, we took two. Came here, the sandwiches are still in some. <laughs> Surprising, <laughs> there were roaches. <laughs> yeah. They smelled like like lunchrooms, bananas, and peanut butter, and the show smelled like it.
0: Has someone managed to archive all of those? Do they still exist somewhere? No, they're in bags. They're <laughs> Well, everyone can relate to lunch bags, but not everyone can relate to myth and allegory and some of the more esoteric stories that you reference. Are your paintings for everyone or only for the initiated?
1: I hope they're for everyone. I don't think that the references are important. They're important to me, not important to them. I hope they can look at them and say, oh, that's pretty. Really? pretty is almost nicer than beautiful because it's more down to earth and I have had experiences with people who are not educated in the arts who just like them and I love that it doesn't have to be explained you can make up your own story as a matter of fact most people do when people write about my work it's always different than I thought and I like that that's fine I'm not trying to educate people or lecture them If you do know the sources, sometimes it makes it more interesting, like the dance of the Trey is a Mexican dance where the devil and evil and good do this dance. It's done actual, and it's an actual dance at festivals. And the evil and good fight. And all of a sudden the devil comes in and splits them and the idea is that ne- neither good nor bad ever win. They're always combatants. Mm. Byron knew that when he wrote mm. his uh, Manfred, where the, when the hero dies, and he, the devil had taken his soul, and the priest is arguing over it, and, and the devil's arguing over it. And Manfred, who's dying, wakes up, as they often do in theater, and says, I'm not going with theater, you guys. You're not gonna get me. I am my own person, and mm. that's how it ends.
0: It's also interesting because it alludes to some time before when evil and good were a pair. Yeah,
1: yeah. And the the idea of a, of a conclusion or answer is what's important to me. I, I'm not really excited about that. Mm-hmm. Certainly, my own conclusion, which is coming up, I guess, in a, maybe twenty years. Mm. I'm eighty-one today.
0: Happy birthday.
1: <laughs> and Uh, I'm not sure I want to do that. (laughs) And maybe I'll figure it out.
0: I think you will. Well, let's end with one final funny aside, if you're allowed to tell tales out of school. Uh Uh-oh. I understand you had a very famous Hoosier as your student at one time.
1: I had... uh a film actor that went here. I've forgotten his name.
0: Kevin Klein. Yeah. Uh, Was he your student?
1: No, he's my model. I know all about him. I know everything about his dimensions and everything.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. That's a, that's a great place to end. Bob, thank you so much for coming in today. you have been listening to Profiles, and our guest on the program today is the painter Robert Barnes. For WFIU, I'm Yael Cassander.
1: I I didn't avoid all the bad stuff. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like (laughs) me to be restrained.